Hello and welcome to the DC Wash Up. This is episode number 35. I'm producer Roscoe Whalen, and this week I'm joined by North America correspondent Michael Vincent. Hello, hello. And my fellow producer, Brooke Wiley. Hello. So this week we have a lot of things to talk about. And what a difference a week makes. Because last Thursday we were sitting here talking about Hillary Clinton being back on the trail after having a week off with pneumonia. And that was the biggest story kicking. And since then, that just feels so far in the revision mirror because we've moved on and such big things have been happening in America. So we're going to try to um, dissect those issues this week and explain them within the context of the presidential campaign. So, one, we've had the Australian Prime Minister in town. He's been in New York for the UN General Assembly this week. He's actually in Washington, D.C. today. Um, Correspondent Stephanie March is out chasing him around D.C. at the moment. And... On top of that, we had explosions in New York and New Jersey, um, which seemed to be linked to terror um, over the weekend. And in addition to that, we've had more instances of violent protests across America um, in relation to police methods when it comes to dealing with African-American suspects. So deep breath, and then we'll dive in. First up, Malcolm Turnbull, he's been actually in the United States for a week He's been at the UN General Assembly. He gave a national statement last night. The theme this week at the UN has been about immigration, migration, the refugee crisis. I think uh, it's 65.3 million displaced people around the world right now. 21 million of those are refugees. Uh, The Prime Minister has been touting the Australian immigration policy um, as an example to be held up to the world. Uh, He's also agreed to resettle refugees currently held in a Costa Rican um, camp as part of the intake, the Australian intake, without increasing the numbers that we take in. A lot of surprise in Costa Rica, let me tell you. I spoke to them yesterday. Well, I was going to say, Michael, just (laughs) very quickly, is this a complete out-of-left-field thing like everyone kind of seemed to think it was? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Costa Ricans were like, what is Australia's interest in this? And I had sort of was lost... To try and explain it to them. Um, yeah, it's really odd. Uh, we don't know how many. Um, we don't know whether it's a couple of dozen, a couple of hundred, a couple of thousand. Um, but the reality is that there are a lot of people in Costa Rica, several thousand who are registered uh, refugees, uh, several thousand more, maybe 4,000 registered, 4,000 more who are um, uh, applying. And that's a result of the violence uh, in Central America, in the Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala. Which, if you cast your minds back, uh, led to a lot of kids uh, being uh, sort of trafficked and and travelling across to the US in 2014, causing a headache for President Obama. Now, uh, leaders around the world are helping him out by taking on these refugees out of Costa Rica, which is also helping the US out by not letting them travel through, you know, Mexico, etc. And this was President Obama's idea this week to bring together the leaders for this Refugee Leaders Summit. So that was what he was really pushing this week. So not a surprise to see other nations trying to help out there as well. Um, On top of that, the uh, Australian leaders that are in town have been getting involved with um, US politics as well. I know Malcolm Turnbull today is meeting Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. The most senior Republican in the Congress. Right. The third most powerful man in America, Michael. Yep. He... President Obama dies and then uh, Vice President Biden dies, Speaker Ryan becomes president. Also, though, in terms of power, I mean, he's almost more powerful in some respects than the president because he can just stop that agenda right in its tracks, as he has been doing. Well, maybe he'll have some advice for Malcolm Turnbull about dealing with hostile uh, houses of government uh, this afternoon. But, um, Brooke, the foreign minister, has also been doing likewise. Yeah, that's right. She met with uh, representatives from the Trump and Clinton campaigns. 
one of the hot topics, of course, was the TPP, which continues to cause headaches for, it seems, almost every nation who is involved in that trade pact. We didn't get a really good insight into what the outcome of those meetings were, other than to say that uh, the foreign minister said she was confident that Barack Obama would manage to pass the legislation in a lame duck session. We'll just have to wait and see how successful that is. So all this was happening on the week, over the weekend and this week, and it comes on the backdrop of pipe bomb pressure, cooker explosions happening around New York and New Jersey, which really put America on edge. It was Saturday night, I think around 9pm, mm -hmm. when an explosion went off in Chelsea, in uh, midtown Manhattan. Well, it started earlier in the day, actually. There oh, was yes. this weird report out of, out of New Jersey that a rubbish bin had exploded oh, that's right. on the route of a five-kilometre uh, uh, fundraising run by for U.S. Marines. Mm -hmm. And everyone kind of went, huh? And the only reason that the runners were not running past that bin at that time is because, quite fortuitously, a, hand, a, a backpack had been left at, around the start of the race and they'd stopped it and searched it and checked it out and everything. And someone was very embarrassed and said, I'm sorry, that's mine, you know. Uh, but that scare seems to have stopped the race uh, from starting on time and appears to have stopped anyone from being hurt running past that when it exploded, which they now believe is linked to these bombs in New York. And there were 29 people injured, I think it was, in the Chelsea explosions that were later on the Saturday night. And I think the most miraculous thing about all of this was no one died, which was the most fortunate thing about it. Not even the guys who pulled it out of the suitcase. Which was incredible as well. That's bizarre. Uh, and I, I guess as well the other incredible thing was how quickly they managed to find... Uh, the suspect, who they who they thought had committed the, these acts, and that was because of a messaging service that the um, that the New York Police Department put out on the was it the Monday morning I think seven thirty yeah. And within a couple of hours, they've discovered their suspect who is asleep in the doorway of a New Jersey bar, which is fairly incredible. But not then, a glamorous way to go out. No, but then there was you know seriously the there was yeah. a shootout. He kind of stirred to and pulled a gun on a police officer who fortunately was not killed either. No, um, but straight was, into the body armour in his gut. Lucky, lucky, really lucky. Very lucky. But I guess, you know, despite that, despite the fact that no one died and everything was kind of contained in that sense, this does influence the campaign because this goes to Donald Trump's idea of protecting the homeland and cracking down on immigration because the suspect is, in fact, an, he's an American citizen, but yeah, he was born yeah. in Afghanistan. Came here when he was 12 or 11, yeah. Right. So... So the, the responses from the two campaigns were, were interesting. Donald Trump very quickly jumped off a plane before we had any information on Saturday night and said, a bomb's gone off in New York, mm. um, because that feeds into his narrative. Michael, what was the comparison did you see between the two candidates and how they handled this? Well, I mean, you know, yeah, he jumped off the plane, says it was a bomb, Hillary came out and said, well, you know, that's the kind of, that's the shoot from the hip kind of person that you're going to get if he's the president. Um, I'm going to wait till officials tell me what they think it is. And she tried to take a much more um, I reserved. Say, reserved, I think is the best word. Yeah, I was going to say mature, but maybe that had come off wrong. So, yeah, reserved um, approach to this incident or these incidents, really. But, yeah, it certainly plays into his narrative. You know, we're under attack. We're, you know, under more threat than ever since 9-11. And it's all people that have come from overseas or, you know, the children of people have come from overseas, you know, and he lists them off. You know, you've got... Um, San Bernardino, Fort Hood, uh, the guys in Boston, and then now this, uh, as well as Orlando. And you sit there and you go, well, hmm, 
that's kind of problematic. I mean, and yeah, how do you screen a 12-year-old out as a potential terrorist? Yeah, well, you just, I mean, how do you stop anyone from coming from all the Middle Eastern countries and Afghanistan and all the, you know, the, the, I mean, it's it's not realistic. And then he talks about the ideological test. Yeah, so what do you tell a 12-year-old? Are you happy to be coming to America out of war-torn Afghanistan? What are they going to say? No, I want to, you know, like, I just, it, it it's really interesting. And, and the fact that um, a number of these guys now, uh, in fact, this is the only, this is the first guy to be captured alive since the Boston bombing in 2013, the start of 2013, so the Zanaev, one of the Zanaev, Zanaev brothers. So that's really interesting as well to see what comes out of that. And if he does go to trial or when he does go to trial, what he, what he, how he sort of, how he, how he's portrayed. But that's going to be well after this election's decided. So And uh, Donald Trump also playing on calling Hillary Clinton weak and yeah. basically saying to at one of his rallies, I think on Sunday it was, you know, Hillary's tougher on my supporters, calling them a basket of deplorables, than she is on... On terrorists. Terror and acts of terror. So, yeah. so that was the context earlier this week. But suddenly it seems like the narrative's changed again because we've had violent protests around America. Um, we've had more instances of African-American suspects being shot and killed by police. Um, we've had two incidents, one in Oklahoma and one in North Carolina. Brooke, do you want to run us through what happened in those cases? Yeah, we'll go through them chronologically uh, rather than in order of large-scale protests. But, of course, the first shooting happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, police said they were responding to a call about an abandoned vehicle in the middle of the road. Uh, video from several different angles, including a police chopper, shows police approaching Terence Crutcher, a 40-year-old man, as he holds his hands up in the air and walks away from officers towards his stalled vehicle. Now, police say that Crutcher did not respond to their requests and that a stun gun was used on him and then... Then, of course, Officer Betty Shelby fatally shot him and he was unarmed. Uh, and adding, I think, further fuel to the fire, fire on this one is that in the police chopper, you can hear audio of a man saying he looks like a bad dude. And that has uh, infuriated critics and um, Black Lives Matter activists, uh, the Black Congressional Caucus, uh, saying that that sort of observation being made from two football fields away is an example of police racially profiling and making a very dangerous assumption about a suspect. And then the second shooting was in Charlotte, uh, where two days of violent protests have were preceded by police shooting 43-year-old Keith Lamont Scott, who was killed and, according to police, he was armed uh, outside an apartment complex. Now, police say that he exited his vehicle holding a gun, he got back in the car again, and then he exited the vehicle a second time with the weapon still in his hand. And they say that he didn't follow police orders to drop the weapon and he was shot and he later died in hospital hospital from his injuries. But his family have contested that version of events. They say he was shot while reading a book in his car. And so far, police are refusing to publicly release any of the video footage uh, on tape from that incident, although they have said that they would release the video footage to the family who have requested it. Now, I think, you know, we shouldn't speculate on the facts of these matters because there's obviously a lot that still hasn't come out, but we should contextualise what this is. And this is in an American climate where race is still a huge issue. I mean, it's it's no different to the 60s, the civil rights movement of the 60s, the Watts riots in the 90s in, in LA as well. You know, this idea that it's police against African-American community and this huge distrust that exists between those two communities. Michael, you've covered some of this stuff as well. What, you know, what's your thoughts seeing this rise to the forefront of the news media yet again? Yeah, look, it's interesting timing too, given the election campaign. But um, 
this is where it gets re- I mean, when it gets really interesting is where the facts of the matter are not released as fast as possible. There is no uh, immediate transparency. For example, um, I forget, I think it was South Carolina, the, the gentleman who was shot in the back by a police officer running away from him after a traffic stop um, and shot repeatedly. Uh, and the police initially said, no, um, he was, you know, it was, you know, reaching for the police officer's gun and, and um, you know, this, this there was a struggle and he was shot, which was then within, I think, hours changed because a public video, uh, someone filming on their ca- uh, on their phone released the video and then police just went, yeah, no, nah. okay, charge the guy, kick him out of the police force and police, you know, like total trans, from that point on, total transparency. Um, with um, the police body cameras, sometimes it has helped when they've released those and said, you know, this is actually what happened uh, or police radio calls, sometimes that has happened. But then you've got, you know, let's go through them. Ferguson, Baltimore, Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, where there have been violent protests over the last couple of years as a result of disparity between what the police say, what some witnesses say, what people feel has happened. And in this case, yet again, the police are not releasing the video. Um, They say it's not their uh, job to expose uh, the worst moments of this family's, um, you know, recent, you know, existence to the world, uh, but they will allow the family to see the video. Unfortunately, the police chief says, from what I've seen, it, the video on the one of the body cameras does not actually, exp- you know, reveal what happened. So that doesn't necessarily help in terms of transparency and getting, to pe- basically creating facts, you know, undeniable facts. Yes, he had a gun. No, he did not have a gun. He was pointing it at police. He was not pointing it at police. Because remember, uh, remember in the case of uh, Philando Castile, he had a gun. He was allowed to have a gun. He was sitting in his car. He told the police officer, hey, I'm reaching for my driver's license, but I also have a gun that I'm legally allowed to. And then bang, 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 bang. And that was the only reason we know about that, of course, is from the girlfriend's live video of that, which she, you know, recent reports, she's still, you know, incredibly traumatized by. So this is a, this is a situation you have with African-Americans, police, Black Caucus, basically the Congressional Caucus coming out today, marching down onto the Attorney General's office saying, this is not good enough. This is, this, you know, this has to change. You have to investigate this more. We have to have more police held to account because they are rarely charged in these incidences. And even if they are charged, rarely found guilty of taking a life. Um, and so the emotion is incredibly high. Uh, there have been calls for peace and calls for um, restraint in Charlotte. We'll see again whether that occurs. But for the moment, yet again, another city has been, you know, rocked by violent protests because of an African-American man dying at the hands of police. And when you talk about um, the speed in which uh, the facts are released on these cases, at this point, the distrust between the African-American community and the police community is so significant and so severe that it doesn't really matter what the facts were. They will protest anyway. And I think, you know, and you can understand why if for so long, for so many decades, they've felt that they have been targeted based on race. Well, this is, this is what's fascinating. You're actually starting to see reports now, actual newspaper reports saying, this is the one version of events, this is the other version of events. And you sit there just going, it's so dis- disparate. You wonder how anyone can ever, you know, you can ever overcome those. I mean, yes, body cameras will help. Um, the, I mean, this is the thing. They're still arguing from the, the helicopter footage from the shooting in Tulsa. Mm. Was the guy's window open or not? Mm. And you can say, you know, like even, you know, the other day they were saying, 
but you can see his blood splatter on the window, therefore it must be closed. Well, but maybe, that, like, like, you just sit there just going, why can't we agree that the window was closed because you can see that? No, police say we thought the window was open. And of course, with this issue bubbling away, we've now seen the candidates weigh in as well. Well, and that's right. And particularly, I think it's fitting that it's in Charlotte, in North Carolina, in this state that's on tenterhooks, basically. All the polling shows it's either dead even or one point either way. It's a, a red state. It has been since 1980, save for Barack Obama. It's interesting to see how this factors into the context of the presidential election. And Donald Trump has been courting the black vote over the past week. He's been attending... Oh. His yeah, success in that, I think, is he, controversial, well, but I he's just, attempting to court the black vote. He's courting. Well, this is where it gets interesting, because if you listen to the Black Congressional Caucus Democrats, they'll say he's not courting us, he's using us as kind of like a spur to, you know... Uh, speak to his Speak base. to his base and, and kind of rally, mm-hmm. you know, like, look at me, I'm trying to court African-American voters and try and win over those white women that are suspicious of his motives and his attitudes. And and this is where he got caught out in, in talking yesterday on in a, in a town hall with Sean Hannity on Fox, saying... You know, if they only brought back in, you know, stop and frisk, that would that, that would help solve this problem. Stop and frisk meant in New York, literally, police could stop someone, frisk someone if they had, you know, reason to believe they were, you know, carrying a weapon or whatever. Uh, which, as the you know, judges found, highly, you know, targeted um, massively by a massive, you know, uh, amount uh, minorities. Well, obviously, the African American community is really upset by that today, and he's walked that back, saying, "Oh no, no, no! I was only talking about Chicago. The three thousand people that have been shot in Chicago." So even he realised he'd, you know, overplayed that simple answer. So all of this is occurring in the week leading up to the first presidential debate. And we're only four days away from that now. Michael, you're heading up to Long Island, New York this weekend. Uh, How do you think this is all going to factor in? And does it factor in at all when it comes to presidential debates, which are generally seen as besides breaking news events that totally twist a campaign on its head, it basically is the last chance that candidates have to really sway things in their favour? This is going to be must-watch television, whether you're interested in politics or not, because all the Republican debates pretty much were fascinating to watch because Donald Trump literally was centre stage. Donald Trump literally took down one or two of his, you know, fellow candidates while he was, you know, in, in each of those or, you know, at least per debate. And a moderator. And exactly, and a moderator. Um, and this time around, you wonder how he's going to handle Hillary. First time they've been face-to-face on a debate stage and uh, 90 minutes worth. The body language will be fascinating to watch, and that's what I asked the the director of debates at Southern Illinois University, Todd Graham, who reckons in his lifetime he's seen about 4,000 debates, and he's been watching presidential debates since Bill Clinton, Ross Perot, and George H.W. Bush were going at it in 1992. So here's what he said about body language and the importance of it amongst between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Nonverbal communication is always important in the debates. Remember the camera's always on you, even when you're not speaking. So part of what gives Hillary Clinton trouble is she sometimes chuckles at the wrong time, and that's a little bit bad. And if, if she were ever to look a little bit frustrated, people were, would pick up on that. Part of what gives Donald Trump trouble are the many faces that he makes during the debate and the many sort of gestures in, in, that, that he throws out during them. And I, I think all of that plays into a person's perception. If, if Hillary Clinton can come into these debates like she has, probably about half of them so far, which is with a really relaxed attitude that she enjoys 
always being there, and this is important to her. I think that those are the kind of nonverbals she will send that can win over all those people who say she doesn't have much of a personality and she seems too stiff. Uh, if Donald Trump can come in and avoid interrupting and shouting and name-calling and avoid those sort of nonverbal gestures that, that sort of anger people so much, then again, he'll come over very, very well. He's had plenty of feature-length interviews with people, including Matt Lauer, where his nonverbals have been just fine. He can do that in a debate. It will simply require more discipline. Do you expect Donald Trump, as he has done in many of the other debates with Republicans, to name-call, to talk about them in a disparaging way, to raise really damaging or embarrassing uh, issues about their past, or in the case of Jeb Bush, talk about his brother, uh, the former president. In this case, with Hillary Clinton, do you expect him to call her crooked Hillary? Do you expect him to raise embarrassing issues, for example, Bill Clinton in the White House uh, and the sex scandals? Do you think he'll do something to throw her off her game or to belittle her? Well, whether he calls her a crooked Hillary or a corrupt Hillary, uh, yes, unfortunately, I feel like uh, he will. And here's what will happen. I think it will devolve. I think Trump will begin these debates uh, by, you know, you know, attacking positions, which you're supposed to do. But I think eventually he will lead into attacking his opponent. The reason I say that is because he had 12 chances in the, the Republican debates. I believe there were 12 primary debates. There might have been 11. Uh, he didn't go through one without name-calling someone. So do I think that he'll eventually call her a name? Yes. Do I think it will devolve? Sure. In fact, I have an over-under for a case of beer with one of my debate graduate assistants of 30 minutes. I think he'll try 30 minutes without it, and at some point after the 30-minute mark, I think he'll, he'll start to, to, to throw out the insults. And the problem is, is insults won't play well in a 90-minute debate where it's one-on-one. He has to try to hold off on those. Do I think he will? No. No, I honestly don't. I haven't seen any part of him in a debate that he's been able to do that for, for, for more than 15 minutes. I think I read somewhere this week that uh, the suggestion was to watch the debate with the sound turned off because body <laughs> language is everything and people watching at home will determine a winner based on the way the candidates look and how confident they are as opposed to the actual substance of what they say. Yeah, look, Richard Nixon sweating against JFK, that sort of set the, t- the, the bar for all of these presidential debates. Um, Donald Trump, I'm just having going back through the debates this week to look at how he did in the Republican debates. All those faces he pulls, the gesticulation, everything else compared to, compared to his fellow candidates, who, who he made, he even made them laugh. He even made them react to him, which says, you know, for him, he was basically acting, I'm the alpha male, you're reacting to me, you know, and all of that kind of body language stuff. It, it really worked in his favour in those previous debates. I support the sentiment, but I do really want to know what the candidates actually say. So I will be listening with my volume turned up. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of trying to have a laugh, we should also talk about uh, candidates that have been doing all sorts of different interviews this year. We did see Jeb Bush, who did a, an entry into the Emmys this year, which was hilarious. With that was Jimmy pretty Kimmel. funny. Um, but <laughs> Jeb, exclamation mark! <laughs> <laughs> we saw uh, Donald Trump have his hair um, tussled yeah, by yeah, uh, Jimmy Fallon last week. Tussled. 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 That just says... Very intimate description of what happened. Fallon got so much stick for that. Yeah, he did. And finally, we've seen uh, Hillary Clinton go down one of the more niche paths of doing an interview with comedian Zach Galifianakis uh, for Funny or Dies Between Two Ferns. Um, It's something that Barack Obama has done in the past. uh, it's, It's pretty funny. Take a listen. 
Hi, welcome to another edition of Between Two Ferns. I'm your your host, Zach Galifianakis, and my guest today is Hillary Clinton. Thank you very much, Mrs. Clinton, for being here. Critics have questioned some of your decision-making recently, and by you doing this show, I hope it finally lays that to rest. Oh, I think it, it absolutely proves their case, don't you? Are you excited to be the first girl president? Well, I mean, being president would be such an extraordinary honor and responsibility. Um, but being the first woman elected president and what that would mean for our country and particularly what that would mean for, you know, not just little girls, little boys too, um, that, that's pretty special. Mm -hmm. Not to take away from the historic significance of you perhaps becoming the first female president, but for a younger, younger generation, you will also become their first white president. And that's pretty neat too. As secretary, how many words per minute could you type? And how does President Obama like his coffee? Like himself? Weak? You know, Zach, those are really out-of-date questions. That is such good debate prep <laughs> for Hillary Clinton. If she can keep that sort of... It's, straight face? Yeah, straight face, kind of, I don't really believe you're saying this. Um, I'm the serious person in the room here, that, that would probably work in her favour. No, I thought her, her stony face response to some of those questions was brilliant, actually. It was very funny. Well, Worth Michael, checking out online. Michael, you're going to see it up close on Monday night at the first presidential debate in Long Island. This could be really, you know, it could really be defining for these two candidates. One could really fail, and it could be either of them. And or one could really succeed. It, it's it's that critical. There's only three debates, and this is the first of them. And they've only got, what are we, down to less than... Less than 60. Yeah, less than 50 days to go. And the ABC will be there, and you'll be able to see it all on the ABC. So thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.